0: Welcome to a P.A. Book special edition podcast. I'm Phil Beckman. P.A. Books is a weekly program featuring interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania history, sports, politics, culture, and more. To learn more, visit PCNTV.com. In this episode, I'm joined by Larry Lamer. He is the author of the book Bandstand Land, How Dancing Teenagers Took Over America, and Dick Clark Took Over Rock and Roll. Larry, thank you for joining me.
1: Glad to be here, Phil.
0: Now, American Bandstand was, it's one of the longest running shows on, on television. Uh, The title of your book is Bandstand Land and you say in the book that Bandstand Land was not an actual place It's more a state of mind. What did you mean by that?
1: Yeah, I was looking for a good title for the book I had originally started working with uh, Bunny Gibson who was a dancer on the show and we were calling it behind the smiles It was going to be kind of a behind-the-scenes look from from the perspective of the kids that danced on the show and when we decided that I was going to go a little bit different direction I needed a new title, and I thought, well, you know, Bandstand created kind of an alternative universe, a place for teenagers where they could go. And I I really got this feedback a lot from people who who would race home from school to watch the show, and some some of these mothers would watch the show with them. It was just one of those places where they just felt safe, and they could see their music, which was unusual on TV, especially in the early days, in the 50s.
0: Talk a little bit about the time frame that this show uh, was on. When, when did it get started and kind of where, where did it cover?
1: Yeah, it started in 1952 with Bob Horn was the host. And it was a local show on WFIL, Channel 6 in Philadelphia. And he was with the show for the first four years. And then Dick Clark took it over. And after a year of Clark hosting it as a local show, it went network on ABC and from there it was on tv for the next 32 years basically uh in different forms abc carried it most of those years and it was just it was a big hit from the beginning
0: uh what was the show's format what did it it include
1: (laughs) well that's that's what made it really unusual especially for the network side of it was that it was just a bunch of kids dancing to the music that was popular at the time and it started that way with bob horn but uh, it was in the pre-rock and roll era when Bob Horn had it, and when it was a local show. And by the time Dick Clark took it over, that was when rock and roll was just taken off. Elvis was becoming a household name. And so they decided that uh, yeah, nationally, with with the wildfire of rock and roll, this would be a good way to capitalize on that. And it turned out to be a good decision.
0: Uh, well, let's talk about its origins. Uh, you mentioned Bob Horn was the, the first host of the show. Uh, he had had a show called Bob Horn's Bandstand. Did, was the TV show born out of that radio show?
1: Uh, not really. The um, Bob Horn was a DJ in Philadelphia for quite a few years with a bunch of different stations, and he did. He, he his personal interest was jazz, but his program was largely middle of the road music, pop music, and he, Joni James and Doris Day and that kind of stuff, but. Uh WFA WFIL wanted to have something different for the for the TV station. And they were they copied it after a radio show there on, on in WPEN. And they tried to get the WPEN host to host it and they couldn't do it. They couldn't get out of their contract. So they looked to somebody else and Bob Horton was on staff. They said, okay, why don't you try it?
0: Now, talk a little bit about more about Bob Horn. He would end up becoming a pretty significant figure here in these early years. Uh, where What was his background?
1: Well, he had started in Reading, Pennsylvania, and, and he was pretty much a Pennsylvania guy. And and he had, like I say, he'd worked at several different radio stations, and he, his shows were very popular, so he was a good choice for them um, to to take this over, except that, you know, he was much older than the kids that were dancing on the show. At, at that time, it probably didn't matter as much with the music. It was the same music that that the kids that were on the show, their parents had grown up with. And it was just, like I say, middle of the road music. It wasn't rock and roll at that point.
0: Uh, well, let's just talk about kind of how the show was structured itself. It had a variety of different segments or roll call, guest spots, interviews, uh, kind of take us through what a show would have looked like.
1: They took they took a lot of that from the WPEN show. They, they just decided that uh, the format worked really well for them, so they would just borrow some of the things, the roll call, the rate of record, and all of that sort of thing uh it was the early days of television 1952 so they had a lot of leeway on how they were going to produce this show so they they got their set designer together and he created they took a backdrop that actually had been on the paul whiteman show which was an earlier show on wfil and it had a it was like set in a record store and they put that up on the wall and they put a stage up there where bob horn could be there Uh, and he had a co-host in the early days called lee stewart and stewart was supposed to be the the funny guy and it turned out he wasn't quite as funny as they'd hoped and they eventually got rid of him but the the format stuck where bob horn would stand on the stage in front of this backdrop of a record store and he would play songs and they would have a top 10 list and he would talk to the kids and he would talk to the the singers that came on the show they would they would do a roll call where they came by and told what high school they went to so you know a lot of kids in the Philadelphia area would watch it just to see kids from their school or from other schools that they knew about
0: now could could any teenager get on the show how how did that work
1: you know at first it was pretty open they didn't know exactly what was going to happen in fact the first show they weren't sure anybody was going to show up and it was a little bit slow but once people found out about it it went gangbusters there were kids from all over and they, they had three schools within half a mile of the studio so it was easy to get high school kids there you know right after school so they they didn't really have any trouble getting the kids there after a while they had so many they had to come up with a system to keep the crowd under control they could only handle about 200 kids in the studio so they the, they would let equal numbers of boys and girls. They would have a line on one side of the entrance for boys and one on the girls' side, and they would let them in. And they they, they want to make sure they always had kids there, so they created a committee of, of young high school kids who would, they would give them a membership card. They would guarantee them, you can come into the show, but you have to show up. We need to have somebody here. We can't have a TV show with an empty studio.
0: Now, this committee of regulars... Uh, You know, the high school kids can sometimes be kind of cliquish. Uh, I guess that that would have played into being a member of the committee of regulars, too.
1: It was it was a big deal for for the kids. I mean, uh, in the early years, especially the kids that showed up, they just wanted to get on TV and dance. And of course, TV was new. And the whole concept of a program like that was new. And it was a local show. So it wasn't quite as significant as it would be when it went network, when it went network. Uh, it was not unusual for some of the regular kids that danced on the show every day to have fan clubs, maybe 200 fan clubs, and they would get just tons of fan mail. And even in the Bob Horn era, they got quite a bit of fan mail, and he would distribute it on air. And so the kids would be lined up, and he'd say, here's your, here's your mail, and they'd walk off with mail stuffed in their pockets and while they were dancing.
0: Now, there were, there were singers who would come on the show. Uh, did, they, did they perform live?
1: Uh, you know, I, I don't I don't really know if they did perform live on the horn horn years, but I know in the the Dick Clark years they certainly didn't. They They all lip synced. and I, I imagine that's what they did on the on the horn years too. It would have been just too difficult in a, in that small studio to have a band. They couldn't do that. So I know I know that certainly during the Clark years they did lip sync and I, I imagine that's what they've always done.
0: Now you mentioned in the book that, that Bob Horn, uh, in addition to having an office at the studio, he would do a lot of work at a nearby pub called the Brown Jug.
1: Yeah, uh, well, that was that was where he negotiated deals. I mean, <laughs> the, that was a, a lot of the staff from WFIL would hang out at the Brown Jug, and he, he had a lot of song pluggers that would come by, want him to play those records. And that's where he would usually meet them. He'd, he'd meet them in the bar, rather. And they had a back room back there where they could hold meetings and that dick clark did that too they they would have the one day a week that was set aside for the song pluggers to come in and say these are our new records we want you to play them
0: uh, you talked about the song pluggers uh, talk a little bit about more more about them what, what was the industry like at that time
1: well in the early 50s it was it was pretty casual uh there it, it was i'm sure payola was a big deal even back then uh, Pale has been around in the music business forever. Uh, it's a competitive business, and to get your get your songs on the air, you had to have an edge. And sometimes that that edge was a couple of bucks to the disc jockey that was playing it. So, you know, they they were they were getting courted a lot. The disc jockeys they were the ones who were making the decisions on what got played on the air.
0: Uh, disc jockeys did seem to have a lot more power back in those days, and. You know, one of the key key disc jockeys of the time was Alan Freed. Uh, who was he?
1: Alan Freed was a disc jockey who started in Ohio. and he had he was very popular there, and he would plug concerts in town where they would draw huge crowds. And that caught the notice of some New York radio stations, and he eventually went to New York. Uh, where he did the same thing. And, and there with that bigger market, you know, he was the one who, who allegedly coined the phrase rock and roll. And he actually tried to copyright it, but which was unenforceable at the time. But with his huge following, and he, and he made movies too. He made rock and roll movies, which just had a simple storyline. But they'd have a lot of rock and roll singers on there and uh, you know, give them publicity. And he was notorious for getting cut in on on writing credits for songs that he never wrote, that sort of thing. So he had, he had a lot of side businesses going
0: on. Now, Bob Horn was the original host of Bandstand. He would be replaced later by Dick Clark. Uh, what happened to Bob Horn? Why, why did he fall out of favor?
1: Well, initially it was because he had a, he had an incident where he was, in, he was arrested for drunk driving and they decided that, they didn't want him on the air, they were going to pull him aside, take him off the air for a short time. And then when they when they did that and they found out about that, uh, the district attorney tipped him off and said, you know, there's something else going on with, with him. So when they found out what that was, there was a there was a vice sting going on and Bob Horn was caught, caught up in that.
0: Now, how did they arrive at Dick Clark being his replacement?
1: they had a whole bunch of young uh, announcers at wfil at the time and uh, dick clark was just one of them and any one of maybe a half dozen dozen people was considered for the job but dick clark had so impressed them when he came in for his first radio interview a, a few years earlier that he was kind of on the fast track and when they finally got down to deciding they said well dick's our boy
0: Now, he was not originally from Philadelphia. He was from New York. How did he end up in Philadelphia?
1: Yeah, he was in Mount Vernon, New York, and his dad was a salesman there. And his dad took a job with a radio station in upstate New York that his uncle ran. And by the time his dad was the manager of the radio station, Dick Clark was in college, and he decided that he was going to take a part-time job there. And he did. And uh, while he was in the radio business up there, he also got exposed to television, and he had a couple of job offers at one point and he was ready to make a decision about a TV career. And his dad said, well, are you sure you really want to go to a smaller town or would you rather do radio in a big city like Philadelphia? I know some people down there. And so they sent him down for an interview and he got the job.
0: Now you say in the book that his personal tastes didn't include rock and roll and yet he would become one of the you know, key figures in rock and roll in those early years. So how did, how did he latch onto that music style?
1: You know, I don't, I don't think he cared what the music was. I think he just liked the opportunity to, to be on TV. And uh, I don't think the music was important to him. But when he found out that rock and roll was the music of, of choice of the kids that were dancing on the show, he got up to speed fairly quickly. He, he, there were some good DJs in the Philadelphia area that helped him out, but uh, when he first took over the show, the radio, shows, the radio show that he'd had was a middle-of-the-road show, and they just didn't play that kind of music, and the ratings weren't that good. He was always con- complaining to the management. He says, you know, it's, it's the music I'm playing. It's not that I'm a lousy announcer. That's why the ratings are bad. If you let me play the music that Bob Horn plays, I'll do good, too. That's what he
0: proved. Now, given that the teenagers who were dancing on the show were such a, a key part of it, how did they respond to Bob Horn uh, being let go and Dick Clark coming in?
1: Well, initially, they didn't like it at all. They protested and they picketed. And, and Jerry Blavitt, who is a well-known disc jockey in the area now, he was just a, a teenage dancer at the time that Bob Horn got removed. But he was also very close to Bob Horn. He was He had won a lot of dance contests on bandstand, and he helped Horn pick the music. Because uh, the transition period, it would be easy to get caught up and not make good choices. But Jerry Blavitt was pr- pretty well in tune with what kids wanted. And so he worked with Horn on the music. And when Horn got fired, he thought, oh, man, this is not good. <laughs> you know, this is not good for me. I had this job. And, and he led this protest. So that went on for a while. And, and then after a while, the kids kind of settled down, down and adapted to Dick Clark.
0: Now, at the time, you're right that rock and roll was seen as a fad by many in 1957. Uh, But Dick Clark seemed to have had a little bit of a larger vision of it at that time.
1: Yeah, I think I think a lot of people didn't know where rock and roll was going. I mean, uh, most of the TV business and and the newspapers and the magazines were in control of older people that grew up in the big band era. And they just they really didn't care much for the music, although kids did. And so Dick Clark, like I say, I don't think he he cared what the music was. He was going to go with the show. He was going to build it into something good by giving what the public wanted. And at that time, it was rock and roll. So that's what
0: he did. So what did he do that was so different from what Bob Horn had done that that made the show successful?
1: You know, I think one of the one of the keys in the long run was that he had this youthful appearance. Uh, Bob Horn was a middle aged guy. He was more like a father to these to these kids that danced on the show, and they looked at him that way. Dick Clark was not that much older than the kids that danced on the show. He was in his mid twenties when he took over the show. So he, he could identify with them and he and he paid attention to him. He didn't. He never you never would confuse him for one of the dancers. I mean, he dressed nicer and he, he was well groomed and he was very polite. He was v- very well spoken, but he but he paid attention to what the kids liked. And he gave them that. And I think that's why he was so, so successful.
0: Now, they also had uh, something that the instituted when Bob Horn was there that Dick Clark continued were uh, rules for the kids and that they could be banned from the show if they violated the rules. What were some of those rules?
1: Yeah, they had um, they had some trouble at first when um, when Bob Horn took it over. They they were getting they the kids weren't as well behaved, I guess, is what they wanted. So they thought they'd put some rules in. they had to be well dressed. They had to have a. a The boys had to wear a sport coat or a suit coat. They had to wear a tie, and no blue jeans, no no casual clothes at all. And girls had to wear dresses and had to be, you know, had to wear their not their Sunday best, but they had had to be nicely groomed and everything. And and they couldn't chew gum in the studio. And you know, if they kids at that age, they like to get in front of the camera too. They like they like to jostle each other out of the way, so you couldn't do that either.
0: Now you mentioned that they they were pretty savvy. They they learned how to read the tally light on the camera to figure out which one was on. Uh, right. What what would they do? What what could the crew do for this? Something like that.
1: Well, it was it was basically a, a three camera show. They had one camera that was elevated in the back of the studio that was fixed. It didn't move around. But they had two cameras on the sides that moved around with the dancers and they would focus on the dancers feet or you know they did did some pretty innovative camera work for those days but uh what the camera that was live would always have this red tally light that was on and what the what the crew would do is that in the in back in the control room ed yates who was the who was the director of the show he found out that he could dissolve one light If he if he moved the dissolve lever just a little bit He could have two tally lights on at the same time and that would confuse the kids They wouldn't know which one was actually live so he would do that, but they would they would still You know that would only work for a short time and after a while they'd figure it out
0: Now this time period the 1950s was also an era of segregation and you tell the story about uh, at one point uh, during an Alan freed show that the the singer Frankie Lyman who was an african-american Uh, was seen dancing with a white girl on TV and that that resulted in uh, protests and a lot of a lot of bad mail. And that sponsors, uh, you say the sponsors took notice and told Freed that he could continue, but only with uh, white acts.
1: Right. And Alan Freed was with the ABC network at that time. And the, the show in question with Frankie Lyman was just a few days before the debut of Bandstand as a national show. So, uh, you know, Dick Clark was was well attuned to that situation that uh, the network did not want a black kid dancing with a white girl. So he was very careful to make sure none of that happened on his show.
0: Now, Dick Clark, uh, he was a pretty enterprising figure. One of the things in reading this book that I thought was uh, interesting was just the, the variety and number of businesses that he became involved in. Uh, I just mentioned a couple of them, the Click Corporation, Jamie Records, C-Lark Enterprise, which is a music publishing, uh, Swan Records, January Corp, February Corp, and so on. Uh, can you talk about some of these and uh, w- how he got into these businesses and what he was doing?
1: Yeah, he was kind of breaking new ground for uh, there. There hadn't been a disc jockey in the rock and roll era that had the kind of clout that he did. I mean, he had a national television program that would draw 10, 20 million viewers a day. He had enormous power and he thought, you know, I should take advantage of this. And so he did. He got in. He got into the production business. He produced the show. He bought into some local record labels. He also bought into some distribution companies so they could distribute the records. He got into the pressing companies that actually pressed the records. He got into artists' management. He, he managed people like Dwayne Eddy, and then he got into business with his with his producer with uh, with Tony Mamarella, and they created companies that made record cases that carried you could carry the records in. So just about any part of the record business. He he got involved in one at a time.
0: Now, was any of that illegal at the time?
1: No, none of it was illegal. A lot of people did that sort of thing. I mean, in television. I mean, Lawrence Welk was into a whole bunch of companies. You had Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz were in a bunch of stuff. And that was always Clark's you know, that was his defense was that if I'm going to get into any kind of side business, it ought to be a business that I know something about. I know something about the music business. so It just makes sense that I'm going to get involved in that.
0: Now, today we tend to think of New York and Los Angeles as the centers of television and other entertainment. Uh, but this show was in Philadelphia and the, the bandstand concept itself was easily duplicated. And uh, talk about some of the other shows around the country that, that duplicated it.
1: There were there were a lot of shows that did it, and some of them were successful on local levels. There was one in Chicago with Jim Lounsbury that that was around for a long time, and uh, there were shows in um, in Baltimore and in Washington D.C. There was Milk Grant, and there was um, was a Buddy Dean, I think, in uh, in Baltimore that uh, they hairspray was based on. There were a lot of these uh, copycat shows around the country, but none of them. None of them went national. It was just uh, a lot of it was good timing. And and because of WFIL being affiliated with ABC, um, they were one of the first stations with the network. It was the third network. It was it was at the bottom of the ratings in the early 50s, and they were just hungry for programming. So when it came time to to fill up their schedule, they looked to Philadelphia quite a bit.
0: Now, Dick Clark was, uh, in addition to being on television five days a week with Bandstand, he had other TV shows. Uh, what, what were some of those shows?
1: Oh, gosh. He was in so many different shows that were on for just a, a short period of time. He was on a, a show before Bandstand, even at WFIL, called The Lewis and Clark Show, with a woman called Nancy Lewis. And that didn't last very long. But at, at one point, he was on TV seven nights a week, on na- national TV. He was on... TV for like 13 hours a week, which is unheard of these days.
0: Now the, the career of a, of a disc jockey could be very lucrative. They, they would often do hops and dances and, and that sort of thing. Was, was he doing that type of thing as well?
1: He, he liked to do that. He liked going out to the, to the record hops in the Philadelphia area. And I think he did that for quite a few years in the early years uh, until his time became more valuable, but he would go and they they'd charge 50 cents. To get into these hops, he'd bring he'd bring artists that, that he was familiar with, and they were quite popular.
0: Now he also uh, was in several movies. Uh, what kinds of movies were, was he in?
1: You know, he his his relationship with the movie business went back quite a ways. He had actually before Bandstand went national, he had he was in the production business of a movie called Jamboree, which was basically a. It was an Alan Freed-type movie where there were just a lot of musical acts and just some flimsy little storyline between them. And so they they filmed this in New York City when he was uh, still a local DJ. He and another local Philadelphia uh, record executive put up some money to do this. And uh, they got a lot of different DJs from around the country to take part of it. That would help boost the gate. You know at the theaters when they had a local DJ MC in some of these shows some of these acts in there and uh, Frankie Avalon was in the movie and and Charlie Gracie you know big acts from the Philadelphia area and then they had uh, you know just a lot of other people
0: now uh, one of Clark's neighbors was a guy named Ed McMahon who uh, would go go down in history as uh, Johnny Carson's sidekick for many years uh, how did Clark influence his career
1: well, you know, Ed McMahon and Johnny Carson were both had apartments in the Drexelbrook con you know complex out in west west side of Philadelphia, and there was a show called Person to Person with Edward R. Murrow, and he did a show from Clark's apartment in Drexelbrook. And they, they basically turned his apartment into a TV studio. And they just did a 15-minute show. But after the show, they had a, a, a party for all, all of the apartment complex people because you know, they were kind of put out a little bit by all this camera crew around for a week, getting this studio set up and everything else. So they had this party. And Ed McMahon, being a neighbor, he emceed the party. And at that party, he found out they were looking for, a. there was an opening in New York City for a young announcer called Johnny Carson who needed an MC for a a show called, Do You Trust Your Wife?, which was a quiz show that was on in the afternoons on the ABC network. And it it turned out Ed McMahon got the job with Johnny Carson and they they went on together for decades.
0: Uh, Let's talk a little bit more about some of the the dancers, the teenagers who were on, on these shows. Uh, some of them became really big stars nationally. Uh, people like uh, Tommy DeNoble, who was he?
1: Tommy DeNoble was, uh, he, he became a star just off of the local section during the Bob Horn years, basically. He was just a real snappy dresser, and people noticed him, and he would get invited to do dances ar- around Philadelphia area. You know, they, they would say, come on, Tommy, and do it, and they'd start, they'd take out newspaper ads to promote Tommy Denoble there, and after he left Bandstand, he actually had a short recording career, and then he he worked at a, a TV stations in the Philadelphia area right up for the rest of
0: his life. Uh, another one of the dancers was Rosemary Beltrante.
1: Yeah, she was one of there were. I think she had two or three sisters that danced on the show too, and that was that was not uncommon for these uh, kids, especially from South Philadelphia, for some reason, they, they drew a lot of kids from South Philadelphia. It was a little bit of a haul to get there, but these kids used to be really into the music there. I mean, that's where, uh, you know, Fabian, Frankie Avalon, Chubby Checker, they all went to the same high school.
0: Now you mentioned that, uh, some of the kids, they, they would become pretty famous in cities around the country, but not necessarily in their neighborhoods or in their schools. How, how are they treated at home?
1: You know, that was one of the things that really surprised me was that uh, I thought these kids were revered everywhere because they had all these fan clubs and kids would send them gifts on their birthday. They would get cufflinks or tiaras. They would get all kinds of stuff through the mail. But around town, there was evidently a lot of animosity. And I I heard this from several of the kids that danced on the show. They said we were big stars outside of Philadelphia, but in town. People just hated us. So they would make fun of them at school. They would bully them. There were just lots of bad things. I was surprised. Bunny, Bunny Gibson told me about that initially, and she had a lot of trouble in school with, with her nun, the nun teachers, and all that sort of thing, so evidently there was an awful lot of that that went on.
0: Now, this was a time of dances. This was, you know, the show, of course, was about dances, and they often had funny names. Uh, can you talk about some of those? There's one called the Bunny Hop.
1: The Bunny Hop was a big song for Ray Anthony in the early 50s, and uh, Bob Horn played it, and the kids started dancing around the studio in it. It was a silly little dance where they'd hop around and hold on to the hips of the person in front of them. And uh, the kids that danced it became stars. They became invited to, to demonstrate the Bunny Hop. When Dick Clark took over the show, one of the first... Uh, dances that originated on there was the the stroll which was a very popular dance around it was it was a line dance too but you would line up boys on one side girls on the other and you'd pair up and you'd stroll down the line and then you'd peel off and somebody else would come and do it and it became quite a thing especially later when uh, after the Paola hearings when dick Clark the, the twist that became a really huge dance nationally. And from then on, it was just dance after dance after dance.
0: We talked earlier about uh, DJs and how they had a lot of power at one point. Uh, but then something came in that, that started undermining that, and that was Top 40 Radio. Where, where did that begin?
1: Top 40 Radio actually began in Omaha, Nebraska. And it be- began with a guy named Todd Todd Stores who owned a radio station there. And he had noticed in the, when he was in the service he would go to a cafe or something and he would hang out there all night and they'd play the same songs on the jukebox and at the end of the shift the waitress would take her tip money and she'd go play the same songs and he thought well people just want to hear the same few songs all the time so he decided to initiate that format at his radio station where they would disc jockeys were limited to a playlist of They had the top 40. They had a little leeway on breaking new songs and playing some oldies and that sort of thing. But it took a lot of the power out of the hands of the DJ because the program director was telling them which songs to play. And they would play the same songs over and over again. And it just became very popular around the country. They did it in Philadelphia as well. But a lot of stations, when they took that format, they climbed the ratings in, the, in their local markets, so it became very, very popular, but it did. It, it had a deleterious effect on DJs. They didn't have the, the power that they did before. It, the power was shifting to program directors, and, and eventually with the top 40 format, even record stores and anybody else that sold records, they could come up with their own top 40 lists. And people were buying records they'd never heard of just because they were on the list now instead of because they heard them on the radio.
0: Uh, let's talk a little bit about Dick Clark's influence on musicians. Uh, Philadelphia, a lot of musicians came out of that area during that time period. You know, We're familiar with people like Fabian and Frankie Avalon. Uh, what kind of influence did he have on their careers?
1: Well, it was huge. I mean, for for one thing, the, when the early years of American Bandstand, they, they still had an hour that was a local show. They did the hour and a half that was national, but they would have another hour to fill of local shows. So they would need... They would need local artists to fill that show. So he started out with the local people in that hour. And if a song was became popular there, since he was now in the music business, he would get them a record deal with a bigger company maybe, and, and they'd get some national distribution. And if a song could sell nationally, he could play it on the national portion. So a lot of these songs, did th- they did that with a lot of these local people. The first one was Danny and the Juniors with At the Hop. And, you know, that became a big hit nationally. So after that, you know, he could do that. And then because he had so many artists locally, it was it just made sense for him to get people locally to come on the show rather than try to get somebody off of a touring show or something like that. Plus, they they didn't pay well for this show. I mean, he only paid scale which at that time was usually $155. And he, even at that, they didn't get it usually. They had to sign the checks back, and if they got any money at all, it would come from the record company.
0: Now, another uh, musician from the local area was uh, Bill Haley, who became very famous uh, rock and roll royalty at one point. Uh, where was he from, and what was his connection to Bandstand?
1: Yeah, he was. he was from the area, and he probably was on the show a lot more in the horn era. Um, but, uh, yeah, he started out as a country singer from Chester, Pennsylvania, and, and he was, he was very connected to the music business too. And, and a lot of, a lot of that business part of it overlapped with Dick Clark with some of the distribution deals and that sort of thing.
0: Another musician was Chubby Checker. And, uh, how did he get his name?
1: Well, he got, he got the name from Dick Clark's wife, basically. And what it, what had happened was that. Dick Clark wanted to do a a Christmas card, an audio Christmas card, which would be a 45. And he wanted to have somebody imitate popular singers of the day doing a Christmas song. And so he wanted to know if anybody, he had all these people with the different record companies around, and the cameo people said, well, we've got this kid down in South Philadelphia has been bugging us like crazy. To come in and record stuff and we just we don't know what he what he can do, but he's a pretty good, pretty good at imitating people. He does this in the cafeteria at school. So maybe you might might want to give him a try. And so he came in. His name was Ernest Evans. And he came in. He was he was known as Chubby. That's what people called him, Chubby Evans, when he was in in school. And he came in to to record the record and, and Dick Clark's wife was there and said, Oh, what's your name? And he goes, It's Chubby. And she goes, Oh, Chubby. Like Fats Domino. You're like Chubby Checker. And he goes, Yeah, I guess I am. And so the the name
0: stuck. Now, another musician from that time period was Dwayne Eddy. Who is he?
1: Dwayne Eddy was uh, was a guitar player basically from uh, from the Arizona from the Phoenix area and he was he was another one of those guys who was just kind of knocking around and he he ended up being on the Jamie record label at the same time that Dick Clark uh, bought into the Jamie record label and since he was doing instrumental records that worked out really well for, for American Bandstand because they had a lot of time to fill when they went to a commercial or when they came back from a course where they would play just a few snippets of a song. And an instrumental was just perfect for that. So uh, Dwayne Eddy showed up and Dick Clark liked him and, and they went on. Dick Clark ended up pressing his records. He, he owned the record label he was on and he managed his career for a long time.
0: At the, in your book, you say that Uh, one of the things you were trying to do with the book was answer the question, why Bland TV disc jockey seemed to come out of uh, what became these Paola hearings unscathed. And so let's talk a little bit about Paola. What what was it? What does that word mean?
1: Yeah, that was the the impetus for the book. I originally wanted to do something on Alan Freed because Alan Freed was really the father of rock and roll. But somebody else had already done that book. And I thought, well, the flip side of Alan Freed would be Dick Clark because what happened was when when congress got in, involved in investigating the music business it came out of the out of the quiz show hearings you know there was a quiz show scandal in the the late 50s there were a lot of people in the quiz show were getting answers from ahead of time and it just wasn't all on the up and up and when the when the house when the representatives found out that the the people that, that were doing this were also involved in radio, they thought, well, this might be a good time to go after rock and roll. So they, they branched out looking into Paola, and they found out that a lot of disc jockeys were accepting money to play records. And like I say, Alan Freed, he t- he cut in on writing credits and that sort of thing. And he he was a prime target since he was such a big name. So... They got into this, and a lot of disc jockeys around the country lost their job. Uh, Dick Clark was like the prize; they—they were the one. He was the one they really wanted to get down because he was the one that was had the biggest influence with teenagers. By the time they got to Dick Clark. You know, when they were done with him, they they thought, you know, he's pretty good. Now, Alan Freed went on. He lost job after job. His career was basically over, and he died a few years later at the age of 42. And Dick Clark went on to have a marvelous career in TV, although one of the byproducts of the payola situation was that ABC forced him out of the music business. He had to get rid of all of the... The the music business connections that he had, but he was able to keep
0: the TV connections. Now, was Paola illegal at that time?
1: No, payola wasn't illegal at all, and that that was one of the big things that Congress was said they were going to do is they're going to they're going to take down the music and they were going to create some laws so that people couldn't do it again. But they couldn't they didn't come up with anything that that made it illegal, they looked at it from the Federal Trade Commission, from the FCC. Every government organization was looking into it, and they really couldn't come up with anything. And then a lot of people compared it to what they call in Washington lobbying, where somebody would come buy somebody dinner or or make a contribution to their political campaign. They didn't see it as any different than that. So at, at the end of all of this, Rock and roll was still strong, and there there were wasn't any law against Baola really.
0: Now you mentioned that ABC uh, forced Dick Clark to kind of remove himself from uh, some of the music industry uh, in, uh, investments that he had. Uh, did they? How did they do that? Did they? Did they required in his contract?
1: Uh, no, they just wanted to remove. they gave they gave him an option. they They summoned him to to Leonard Goldenson, who was the head of ABC, summoned him to wash to New York for a meeting. And they told him they said, y- you know, we've got this conflict. You can't be in both businesses because at least the appearance of a conflict, if you're playing records, on a national TV show on our network that you have all these financial interests in, people are going to be suspicious of that and so we're going to give you the choice you can stay in the music business and you can do all of this or you can you can stay in the TV business and get rid of your music connections and it was, it was interesting because they gave the same choice to his producer you know Tony Mamarella and he made a different choice. He decided to go into the music business instead of the TV business. And he ended up with Swan Records. He was one of the part owners of Swan Records, ended up giving the Beatles their first gold record for She Loves You. So he had a pretty good, pretty good run uh, in the music business. And, and Clark just got out of the music business altogether. And you know what he did with TV. I mean, he had all these different TV shows and
0: now, as the Payola effort was going on, it, there were a, a lot of hearings, uh, congressional hearings, and Dick Clark did eventually testify in front of a subcommittee. Uh, can you talk about what what his testifying was was like?
1: Yeah, he did testify, and uh, you know, he got in there and he read a he read a, a opening statement that took like an hour to read, and and he just kind of defended himself, and he he outlined all these businesses that he owned. And then they started questioning him and, you know, he had an answer for just about everything he had actually before the hearing, he had hired a company to analyze all the music that he had played on American bandstand since it had gone national and he kept a record on index cards. He had 15,000 index cards that showed the songs he played, how many times he played them, you know, what the dates that he played them. And he gave this to a company that came up with an analysis that showed, oh, he's not so bad. He did, he only played a few songs that he really had an interest in. And the government took the same cards and gave them to a different firm to analyze. And they said, man, this guy's playing all these records that he has an interest in. They had totally contradictory views of it. and. But by the time they got done, you know, they, they couldn't find out that he'd violated anything. He never took any money to play a record, which was, was the basic rule of payola at that time. So they basically let him off the hook.
0: Now you quote one newspaper columnist saying that uh, Clark's many revenue streams should be called Clarkola.
1: Yeah, they had all kinds of names for for Paola, and he was his revenue streams were so unique, because he was so integrated into the music business. It's a lot di- different for a for a promotion man to meet a disc jockey in a in a bathroom and give him a hundred dollar bill and slip him a record to play. That's a lot different than having a guy who plays records by a guy who he owns his. Record label. He he owns the rights to his songs. He manages. this quite a bit different.
0: Now you also mentioned that uh, one one session in front of this subcommittee degenerated into a discussion of Fabian's talent.
1: Yeah, that was kind of funny, but uh, you know, I, I in the book I detail what the makeup of the subcommittee was like, and they were all older people. Some of them were from the South who just absolutely hated rock and roll, and and they just had no concept of what people wanted. They said, well, why don't you play Frank Sinatra? Why don't you play Dean Martin more? People like that, and that's really good music. He said, yeah, but the kids won't, they don't want to dance to that. They want to dance to these other people.
0: I guess one of the things that opened Clark's eyes to what was going on was when one of the congressmen who was on the committee, or the subcommittee brought in his son for an autograph. Yeah, yeah.
1: That kind of opened his eyes. He said, now I know what this is all about. They're just doing this for for show. And i that's probably right. We know how politi- politicians like to get up in front of an audience and do one thing, and maybe when their cameras are turned off, they might do something else.
0: Now, as a result of uh, of all this, ABC wanted to keep Keep an eye on Dick Clark, so that the one person that they chose to keep an eye on him was a guy named Chuck Barris. I was a bit surprised to hear about that. Who was he?
1: Yeah, I kind of stumbled into Chuck Barris. He was uh, he was working in kind of a low management position at ABC. He bounced around a little bit, and uh, they decided uh, Leonard Goldenson decided. That with Clark getting out of the music business, and this was actually the interim period before his testimony at the Payola hearings, they thought, you know, he says he's gonna get out of the music business, but how do we know he's really gonna do that? We want somebody to go down there and keep an eye on him down there and, and write a report every day on what Dick Clark does with on American Bandstand. And so They sent Chuck Barris down and he would take the train down every day and he'd sit there and he'd watch the show and he'd take notes and he'd file a report and he'd put it in a box. I don't think anybody ever looked at him. I'd love to see that box of reports that Chuck Barris did, but he would just play with the crew. He would played chess with Charlie O'Donnell, who was the announcer of the show. And I think one of the stories I've got in there is he went up to Brenda Lee. Uh, Brenda Lee had appeared on the show, and he said, you know, you sound pretty good. I think you've got a future in this business. And she'd already had like six gold records at the time.
0: And, of course, Chuck Barris would go on to host the the gong show in the 1970s.
1: Yeah, yeah. He actually, at at one point in his down years, he had had applied to be a CIA agent. And as far as I know, that never happened.
0: So as you were doing the research into this book, were, were there any things that really surprised you or shocked you?
1: I think uh, the biggest surprise that I had was uh, learning that Dick Clark's claims that he had integrated the show from the time it went national were not actually true. And I, I'm not exactly sure how that story got started, but once he got to telling this story, it, it really took root. And he, he just told it for most of his life. And I Found out uh, largely through Tony Mammarella had started to write a, a book called Bandstand Off My Back, which was very interesting. And the family was very, very gracious in letting me excerpt parts of that. But Tony Mammarella, he was intimately involved in in the the rules they had with the show that were designed to keep black people off the show. Uh, It wasn't because they were racist and that Dick Clark had any animosity towards Blacks. It was just that what happened to Frankie Lyman and and Alan Freedy didn't want to happen to him. So they just just were very careful about that, although they they never really acknowledged it.
0: Now, American Bandstand would last for many years, as we talked about earlier. What were the long-term impacts of uh, the Paola hearings on Clark? Well, you know he,
1: I don't think he he claims that he lost between eight and twelve million dollars from getting out of the music business, but at the time that he died, he had a net worth of two hundred million dollars, so that's not a real significant amount when you were put in that context i I think it probably helped him focus i mean he, being in the music business, he was just very, very productive in the music business with his series of blooper shows, his game shows, the $10,000 pyramid that went on to, I don't know what the final number was, but that went on for a long, long time. And then he got into producing the award shows, and those were huge. I mean, he one year, I think he produced 12 or 14 different award shows. Some of them he made up just so they'd have another show to put on TV. So he was he was a very good TV producer. In fact, he was very good in, in, in bandstand. He was just a, a super businessman. And I guess that's one thing that i that's still out there is I don't think anybody's ever written the book about Dick Clark. I think he'd be a real interesting study, just the way that he came through with business and the, the way he managed people. He was a control freak. So a lot of people had to adapt to, to his style of management. But uh, I think, you know, he was married three times. You know, his, his wives would all have something interesting to add. And there's there's a, just that personal story of Dick Clark that I don't think has ever been told.
0: Now, American Bandstand would eventually leave Philadelphia. When did it leave and why?
1: Well, it left in 1964, and it went to Los Angeles. And one reason it went to Los Angeles is that that's just where the business was at that point philadelphia had lost a lot of its luster uh, it wasn't it, it wasn't producing hits like it did in the early or late 50s early 60s it was just another city on the map but la was the entertainment capital of the world and you know he could he could really take his tv business and, and flourish out there
0: Well, we're out of time. We've been speaking with Larry Lamer. He is the author of the book Bandstand Land, How Dancing Teenagers Took Over America and Dick Clark Took Over Rock and Roll. Larry, thank you for speaking with me. Glad to be here. To find more P.A. Books episodes and other programs produced by the Pennsylvania Cable Network, visit PCNTV.com or download the PCN app. I'm Phil Beckman. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of P.A. Books a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.